Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on August 30th, 2020 by Joel Kretko. It's the fifth message in our sermon series, Gospel and Cultural Fluency. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Hey, Sardis Fellowship. It's, uh, it's been a while. It's great to be able to interact with you, and I hope that we can all see each other in the, in the near future, at least. Uh, I came home from England just as the current restrictions came into place, so I truly can't wait to be able to hear from, from some of you again, hopefully as things relax. In any case, today we are continuing the sermon series on the gospel and cultural fluency. I wanted to start our dialogue with a bit of a Rorschach test, like a psychology pop quiz. So, lay down on the couch and let's begin. I'm going to say a group of words or phrases, and I want you to see how you connect the group of things. What is the first thing to come to your mind that, that connects them? Ready? Okay, here we go. Bill Gates, John A. McDonald, brain surgeon. Okay, next group. School teacher, Rob Schaff, lifeguard. Okay, next group. Astronaut, Chris Pratt, corporate CEO. Next group, musician, small business owner, Tim Voth. Last group, Abraham Lincoln, Tiger Woods, millionaire. Okay, stop. How did you do? Did you pass? I hope so. I mean, your mental health is on the line here. (laughs) No, but I can at least take a guess at one way that you immediately either consciously or unconsciously divided uh, these groups up. Bill Gates, John A. McDonald, brain surgeon, astronaut Chris Pratt, corporate CEO, Abraham Lincoln, Tiger Woods, millionaire. For each of these, I think it is safe to assume that you thought something like successful or famous or rich. And for school teacher, Rob Schaff, lifeguard, musician, small business owner, and Tim Voth, you probably thought something like normal jobs or maybe even normal or average lives. No offense to Rob and Tim heroes to me. But am I right? Did you categorize these groups in ways like that? I know that that's what my mind uh, immediately jumps to. We we live in a really fascinating culture where there is this kind of division between the average and the renowned or celebrated. We look at certain accomplishments and go, wow, that guy or girl has really got it together. Look at how successful they are. We put jobs, achievements, income brackets, and status into this big, strange category of successful. Whereas we put the average life into the category of, well, just that, average life. Maybe you don't make these distinctions, but I know growing up, this is what the culture around me taught me to believe. Uh, I didn't grow up as a Christian, and I've seen that this is a, a prevalent view in secular society. Now, if you view things this way, I am not calling you out. I'm just pointing out that we often define success as a culture in this way. It seeps into our collective Western mind. It's, it's like osmosis. Do you, do you remember that term from grade 11 biology? Uh, osmosis? It's the idea that something gets into your system without you even knowing it or just because that thing surrounds you. And that's a, that's a troubling possibility because, as Jesus will show us today, he defines success quite differently. We're going to turn to Luke 5, 1 to 11. The scripture reads as follows. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and hearing the word of God, 
he was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats there beside the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put it out from the land a little. He sat down and began to teach the crowds from the boat. And when he stopped speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, although we worked hard through the whole night, we caught nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a very large number of fish and their nets began to tear. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the, both the boats so that they began to sink. And when he saw it, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all those who were with him at the catch of the fish that they had caught. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were business partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. And after they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. I absolutely love this story. It is so full of little details that can easily be missed if you are reading too quickly and in so doing, you can miss the point of it. So what's going on? It starts off with this. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around Jesus and hearing the word of God, he was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret. Jesus is on the shore of this lake, this one. That's the Sea of Galilee. Fun fact, Luke is using another name and classification for this body of water that was popular at that time. The Sea of Galilee is honestly more like a really big lake. It was referred to as both sea and lake at the time, and this shows Luke's familiarity with the land and the way people referred to things. Luke is historically a really accurate author. So, Jesus is standing here. Whereabouts, the text doesn't exactly say, but it, it can probably be assumed it was somewhere near Capernaum, which is Peter's, he's called Simon in this story, uh, his hometown on the shore of this lake. For reference, this is what that looked like. Luke records in chapter 4 that Jesus had just been here pr previously, and he had healed Peter's mother-in-law of a serious fever. Back in that day, they, they didn't have medicine like we do. Uh, a high fever could mean death. So Peter's first encounter with Jesus would have left quite an impression. Who is this guy? He would have said, who, who on earth can just tell a fever to go away? Not to mention, you see that whitish building there in, in the picture? The big one to the right uh, of the center? That's the remains of an ancient synagogue or a building for worship. It's more than likely that this is where Jesus exercised the demon spirit uh, in chapter 4 as well. So Peter would not only have had his personal life changed by this guy named Jesus, but his town and church would have seen how incredible he was. Now, back to our story. Jesus is on the shore of the lake, and he saw two boats there beside the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out from the land a little and he sat down and began to teach the crowds from the boat. Now, first off, what a power move on Jesus' part. He just gets in the guy's boat. But, but secondly, 
Notice Jesus' focus is on his teaching. He's here to bring God's new message to his people, the, the people of Israel. You'll probably be surprised to hear that Jesus' teaching had, had not been overly effective up until this point. Sure, people were amazed at him and his miracles, but the text doesn't say he had uh, followers, and for the most part, people seemed to want him around for his miracles. The end of chapter 4 says that the people didn't want him to leave the area because of this. They didn't care much about his message uh, getting out, but instead wanted him to keep dishing out these, I don't know, these crazy acts of God. So now you've got Jesus sitting on, in the boat, trying again with his teaching, but this time things are different. Jesus isn't going to separate the miracle and the teaching. You can almost hear Jesus mutter to himself, okay, let's kick this up a notch. I'll show them just how life-changing my message is. So, when Jesus stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered and said, Master, although we worked hard through the whole night, we caught nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a very large number of fish, and their nets began to tear. And they signaled to their partners, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Boom, there it is, mic drop miracle. And it, it does get quite the response, but I don't think it is necessarily the exact response Jesus was looking for. I mean, for starters, it's clear that Peter already thinks very highly of Jesus. Most translations bring this out, but the, the first time Peter addresses Jesus here, uh, before the miracle, he calls him master. The Greek term is used uh, throughout the Greek world at, at that time to refer to high officials in government or authority. It is a term of respect and honor. Peter knows Jesus is a local miracle worker who seems to pretty much bend over backwards for anyone who wants anything from him. Jesus is doing nothing but help Peter's community. And now, Jesus was here and he was about to bring Peter back from a total business failure. Notice that the entire team of Peter's fishermen had caught nothing all night. That is a ton of money lost. Peter was certainly looking at his profit margins and was thinking only about the color red. But here comes Jesus. Peter knows he can do it, so they all have at it, and the result is the catch of a lifetime. I mean, two boats were sinking, and before you go saying, well, you know, that's not impressive in modern standards, please look at how big fishing boats were back then. That is an actual first century boat from the town beside Peter's at the time. Maybe it belonged to his cousins. Who knows? These are not small craft. To sink even one of these with fish would be, would be mind-blowing. We're talking about the equivalent to Peter and his co-workers winning the lottery. He just went from small town to big time business. And I think it is business that's on Peter's mind. I want you to read his response with me, but read slowly and carefully. And when he saw it, Simon Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all those who were with him at the catch of the fish that they had caught. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were business partners with Simon. Depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. In, in other words, I don't deserve this, Jesus. I'm not particularly righteous or devout, and this kind of haul of fish is, is way more than I could ever hope for. 
Peter even calls him Lord, which, which is an upgrade from the, the term that he had just used, the one before the miracle. Now Jesus is someone with authority over him. Lord. I mean, why wouldn't Peter put him in this position now? He's gotten right up into Peter's livelihood and given him success beyond his, beyond his wildest dreams. I mean, I'll call you lowercase Lord if you want to give me a winning 649 ticket. <laughs> but make sure you get the point here. Peter is not responding to Jesus' miraculous power or his divine presence. He was already well aware of that. No, look at what the text says. Peter fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all those who were with him at the catch of fish that they had caught. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were business partners with Simon. Peter, James, and John were completely astonished at the fish. Notice that Luke emphasizes that James and John were business partners with Simon. In other words, you know those, those old Looney Tunes cartoons where their eyes would uh, become, become like slot machines and both eyes would land on the dollar signs? That, that's what's going on here. Jesus, the local miracle worker, wasn't only into healing people, but he was going to use that divine power to catapult Peter's business into competition with Rome's greatest fishing industries. Peter was about to become the most famous fisherman from Jerusalem to Rome. Peter was about to become success. Or was he? Jesus' response is one of my favorites of his in all the Gospels. What does he say? And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching people. Do not be afraid. I think we need to be careful not to misread the intention behind that statement. I think you need to read it with Jesus having a, a bit of laughter under his breath. Jesus isn't saying, do not be afraid of my miraculous power or divine presence that I have just shown you. No, he's saying, do not worry or don't worry. This kind of success in your business ain't going to happen again. This is not my main concern. My main concern is something entirely different. We know from the previous verse that Jesus is responding to their excitement about the fish and their business. So this really is the best way to understand Jesus' words. So, do you see what Jesus is doing here? He is changing their expectations. They think Jesus is about to make them succeed uh, in their business, but Jesus is telling them that something else is way more important. His teaching, who he is, this is what was important, and this is where they needed to focus. The fish, they don't matter. Jesus can make them in his sleep. There is something so much better. And to Peter, James, and John's credit, they seem to have had a moment of clarity and understanding because they, in fact, leave the huge catch of fish and instead follow Jesus. And, and that must have been a hard decision. Think, think of it. Their check was sitting right there on the beach, but at that moment, they saw something greater than all the success that they had wanted in their earthly endeavors. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but maybe their hired workers picked up, on the, or picked up the fish and split the proceeds with them later. I, I don't think it matters or is the point. In that moment, they saw Jesus as more than their local miracle worker. They saw something far more important than their own earthly success. 
He was someone they had to, needed to follow. Someone who could provide something way better than this catch. They looked at the fish. They looked at Jesus. Then they followed him. Jesus showed them success, and then he showed them something better. And that's kind of the more impressive miracle here, isn't it? Getting us humans to choose something other than our own success I honestly think this is part of the reason Jesus did this miracle in, this, in the first place. The whole crowd can now see that his miracles are secondary to him as a person. I think it's pretty profound. And I think it also speaks to our own lives. First of all, I think Jesus makes it clear that while he is completely able to give us all the success in the world, he's not really too concerned about that. Some of us need to, to hear Jesus laugh and say... <laughs> Don't worry, you will not be increasing profits 100-fold this year. <laughs> or you won't be achieving that, that other thing. I, I have something far more rewarding for you. Some of us who are so focused on our career paths, we could take a second to, to let that sink in. While the success or failure of our various jobs is certainly something Jesus cares about, it's not his focus. His focus is on you and him, your character, and who you are to the rest of the world. What happens in your vocation or life otherwise, it's secondary. Ups and downs, dreams achieved or shattered. Jesus wants our focus to be on him and what is, what is truly important. He, he doesn't promise success as our culture defines it. He doesn't even consider it to be important in that way. And that is a point that I think needs to be repeated. Uh, remember my little psychology quiz from a few minutes ago? Well, there was, there was one more pattern that some of you may have, you might have picked up on it. Every single group had a Christian in it. Some were incredibly rich and well-known, others were not. God doesn't measure success in that way. God measures success in whether we trust and give ourselves to him, and trusting God means trusting and following Jesus. He asks us to look at the pile of fish, to look at Jesus, and to decide how you will measure success. If you decide to, to leave the fish and follow Jesus, then you are a success in God's eyes, period. That's because if you want to follow Jesus, then God has given you all of Jesus' life and accomplishments as your own. That's the really good news. And now, if you desire his rule and reign to come over your life, then you are succeeding and living the life God is pleased with, period. You are a success. The world and its achievements be damned, you are a success. You are renowned and famous in the eyes of the creator of the universe, period. It goes without saying that this, this is completely counterintuitive and backwards to, to the secular world. But isn't it comforting? Isn't it so much better? When we leave the fish on the beach and follow Jesus, we can, we can work hard at our goals, but not be consumed and overwhelmed. When things don't go our way, there's something else uh, way more important. I know in my own life, uh, I've found a lot of peace in this. Many of you know that I've, I've been in school forever. It's going on 12 years post-secondary at this point. And like many of your, your own careers or paths in life, I've found that every step of the way, working in academics always has another brass ring to grab onto. There's always something more that is considered what it takes to be a true success in this line of work. You'd think it were just, you know, getting the master's degree, PhD, 
but then it becomes, you know, publishing your thesis, writing first published article, and then it just keeps going. It's, it's books, it's research positions, then it's another book, and then it's getting a professorship, and then it's, it's, it's on and on and on and on and on, and it never ends. And I've seen way too many pe unhappy people along every step of the way. Contrary to what is popularly believed, that kind of success doesn't make you truly happy. I mean, when I got my master's degree, I was excited. I was happy for about two weeks. Then I got into Oxford, and I was excited. I was happy for about three weeks. Sometime in the near future, I'll, I'll finish my work at Oxford, and uh, I expect to be happy for, I don't know, uh, maybe a month would be too generous. But the next thing doesn't satisfy, and any achievement, no matter how great, ends up ringing hollow inside. Now, maybe, maybe that's different for you, but uh, it's certainly true for me. And, and that's why I need the pile of fish. That's why I need Jesus standing beside it. I find life in following him rather than sitting there and counting my fish. So you might be asking yourself, okay, Joel, I know what I need to focus on, but are you saying that there is no connection between how I live and what God provides for me? Is it really all random? Is there no correlation between my faith and actions and success in my job or goals? Are you saying that God does not care about or, and reward good behavior? Let me be clear. No, I'm not saying that. I've only been trying to help you see where Jesus wants to lead you and put your attention on. I think the most important aspect in this, this other discussion is to check your level of expectation. Say you wake up this week, setting your alarm 45 minutes early, pray and spend time reading, bring coffees to everyone at work and stay extra late helping clean up, making sure to put those coffee cups in the blue bin because you, you know, you always recycle. And then you tip your hat to a cat on the way out. You do everything right and are just all around awesome. Do you think God is then obligated to give you success? If your answer is yes, then we, we might have a problem. Uh, I mean, first of all, where did this belief come from? Can we see such a promise in the Bible? I've never found it. I mean, I've met people who take a verse or two out of context and then claim these kinds of things, but a closer look at the text has always shown otherwise. We don't have time to go through all these texts today, but I'm always open to talking with any of you about a particular passage that you wonder about or are confused by. Like I'm here for you for that. I mean, all we need to do is look to the most righteous characters in the Bible to see that there's never a guarantee of, of anything. Look at Isaiah. He wrote a big chunk of the Old Testament, but when it came to his life and teaching, no one listened. And if tradition is correct, he was sawn in half for his efforts. What about Jeremiah? Called the weeping prophet and thrown into a pit. Job? The Bible says he was totally righteous, but lost his family and all his possessions. John the Baptist? He got served. Paul, it says many times he was hungry and without even a home. I mean, come on. Jesus himself was practically homeless. The Israelites didn't listen to him, and he was killed for all the good he did. So, whatever verse someone might try to bend to guarantee success, I wonder where that success was for the most righteous people in the Bible. So where does this leave us? You might feel like someone who is working so hard, but is still not getting anywhere, anywhere further. What Jesus teaches us today is that wherever you are at, 
you are still succeeding. If you want him, if you seek him, if you want his kingdom and rule present in your life and in others, however imperfectly, then you have already succeeded. And, And the wonderful thing about the gospel is that even if you have totally bombed, totally failed to live up to what you need to be, God has already fully accepted you and your life in Jesus. Jesus lived the most successful life on planet Earth. And God not only gives you the gift of his life being in the place of your life, but stretches out his hand to ask you to participate in that same kind of life right now, today. So, as you go out right now into your week, can you see the pile of fish? Can you see Jesus? To where are you compelled? Be honest. Be honest with yourself. If your heart is struggling, if you are captivated with the the catch of success, seek Jesus. Or maybe you're worried that things are about to fall apart. Seek Jesus. He's in the trade of taming hearts and bringing them satisfaction and true success in life. May he do that for all of us as we go out into our week. Okay, now we've got some discussion questions for you to discuss among yourselves relating to this week's sermon. Have you ever been caught up in the culture's view of success? What happened? Was it fulfilling? How would your life change today if you were to reorient your life towards a biblical view of success? Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.